I want to welcome those watching online from coast to coast and across the Fruited Plains. My name's Joe. I'm the pastor here at Lynchburg City Church. And if God puts it on your heart to give to the church, you can do so by going to lynchburgcitychurch.com. And with that, I just want to take a second and pray for us. Jesus, we love you because you first loved us. We love you because you first loved us. Thank you. Thank you so much for your love, um, for saving us, for rescuing us. Um, Lord, for President Biden, I pray that you would give him wisdom. Uh, I pray for a special grace in his life. I pr pray that you would protect him, Lord, his mind, his mental faculties, Lord, his, his bodily health, that you would just take care of him and help him. Lord, uh, we, we pray the same thing, Lord, for all of our leaders as we are instructed to in 1 Timothy. Help them to make good and wise decisions. Lord, for our soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, coast guardsmen, those serving both at home and abroad, uh, we pray for their safety. But we also pray for their salvation. We know so many of those guys, they don't, they don't know you, Jesus. We pray that you'd save them. Um, Lord, for Spencer, who's uh, still away with the army, we pray for a special protection uh, and grace and encouragement for him and in his life. And uh, Lord, um, for Vladimir Putin, we pray for his salvation. We pray that you would confuse and frustrate his wicked plans. We pray, Lord, for your church, for the Christians, Lord, in Ukraine, in Russia, that you would help them and encourage them that they might be, that your church might be a shining city on a hill in the midst of so much darkness and hurt and pain, Lord. For the persecuted church, we remember those who are in chains as if in chains right alongside them. The Christians, Lord, in North Korea. The Christians in Afghanistan. The Christians in Nigeria, Lord. God help them. Leah Sherbu being held by Boko Haram in Nigeria because she's a Christian. Pastor Yusuf imprisoned in Iran because he's a Christian. Lord, for the Christians in China, like Pastor Wang and Pastor John, who are still in prison. For the Christians in Eritrea and the South Sudan, Lord, we remember those who are in chains as if in chains with them. Help them. Please help them, Jesus. And today I pray that you would help us protect me from error. Help me to say only what you want me to say today. If there's something you don't want me to say, don't let me say it. If there's something I need to say that I haven't even planned on saying, then, then, then help me to say it. Give, give me a, a fresh filling of the Spirit. And, and Lord, help us. Free us from distraction. Help us to hear from you today. We need you. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. So we are back in John's Gospel. It has been a hot minute uh, since I last preached in John's Gospel, but we're going to pick up. This is going to be part eight of our journey through the Gospel according to John, part eight. We're coming on the heels of chapter two, the wedding of Cana, uh, Jesus cleansing the temple, and today here in part eight, we're going to kick off in chapter three. Chapter 3, verse 1, and we're going to do so uh, by introducing a new character, a, a man named Nicodemus, and, and he's a Pharisee. We see in chapter 3, verse 1, now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, and this is who he is, Pharisee. 
And the Pharisees were a group that originated during the intertestamental period, that is the time between the Old and the New Testament. Uh, They had great influence with the common people, which is kind of ironic because they usually viewed the common people with contempt. They they usually looked down their nose at the regular man. And we we get clues from that (coughs) from places like John chapter 7, verse 49. The Pharisees, by and large, were people who they loved obedience. And they loved for people to know how obedient they they were. They they loved the law, but they didn't always do a very good job of loving people. And so what you have in first century Judaism is you've got two main political groups. You've got the Pharisees, and then you have their arch rival, the Sadducees. And they served together on what was known as the Sanhedrin, which under the Romans was kind of a, a legal court. It exercised a wide range in civil and criminal and religious matters, though the Romans... They had the right to uh, allow or withhold capital punishment. We know that from like John 18.31. But the Sanhedrin, this high court, it had the authority to make arrests, to conduct trials. However, when John says that Nicodemus was a Pharisee, we, we shouldn't automatically think that he served on this court. To be clear, not every Pharisee was actually a part of the Sanhedrin. In fact, most actually weren't. There were by some estimates 6,000 Pharisees by the Jewish historian Josephus at this time. And so the reality is only a very few had the privilege to serve on the Sanhedrin, which was composed of 70 members plus the chief priest who presided over it. But in verse 1 of chapter 3, John tells us that Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews. And that phrase, along with chapter 7, verse 50, seems to indicate that Nicodemus was, in fact, a member of this elite group of the Sanhedrin. In other words, Nicodemus, he's kind of a big deal. He, he would have held considerable, considerable amount of power and influence. He would have been somewhat well-known here in chapter 3 when he shows up to see Jesus. And the text tells us, verse 2, This man, Nicodemus, the ruler of the Jews, he came to Jesus by night and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. Now notice here in verse 2, when Nicodemus meets Jesus, calls him Rabbi. Calls him Rabbi. And what this is, is it's Nicodemus showing great respect to Jesus. Because after all, Nicodemus, he's a member of the Sanhedrin. He's one of the great religious teachers during this time. He's one of the great professors of the day. And he calls Jesus rabbi. And the reason that's such a big deal is because Jesus hasn't been to seminary. Jesus hasn't taken any online courses. He hasn't watched any YouTube videos. He doesn't have any Awana badges. And yet his, despite his apparent lack of accreditation, Nicodemus realizes that there's something different, something special about this man. He's like, Jesus, I'm a Bible teacher. I teach on miracles. I've even got some summer and winter intensives, but... You actually do miracles. You're very interesting, Jesus. And notice when he addresses Jesus. Notice what else he says, or rather how he says it. Verse 2, Rabbi, we know. He uses the plural, we. 
In other words, Nicodemus seems to see himself speaking for at least some of the Pharisees or some of the members of the Jewish council who perhaps were in essential agreement with him that this guy, Jesus, isn't just some ordinary guy. Not to mention, the usage of we here in verse 2, it's likely evidence that Nicodemus is somewhat hiding behind his colleagues, that he's nervous about being there and talking to Jesus. More on that in a second. But Nicodemus says here in verse 2, he says, for no one can do these signs. No one can do these signs. That's the other interesting thing. He uses the plural for signs. No, hold on. How many miracles has Jesus done at this point? Yes, Connor, that's correct. One. He's done one. He turned the water into uh, he turned the water into wine at the wedding of Cana. He's done just one, yet he uses the plural for signs. And that is what's very interesting. Because if you remember back to John chapter 2.23, there have apparently, according to John 2.23, there apparently have been other miracles that Jesus has performed, not specifically recorded by John, which ultimately have led Nicodemus to this very moment. And that's what God will do. Whether you're a religious expert or some kid right out of high school, he will ordain moments to to draw you to himself, to to get your attention, to get your eyes looking in the right direction, looking at him. You see, it is no accident that Nicodemus has come to him, has come to Jesus this very night, just as it is no accident that you're here right now in these seats listening or watching at this exact moment right now because much like Nicodemus, God has and is doing things and lining things up in your life to draw you to himself because as we'll see in a moment, this man Nicodemus, like so many people today, he's broken and he's dead spiritually and he doesn't even realize it. Furthermore, John, who's writing this gospel, informs us that he came to Jesus at night. And if you've ever heard a pastor preach this text before, he probably stole the title from some other pastor before him labeled Nick at Night. Pun intended. Because he shows up at night and his name's Nicodemus. So why would he do that? Why would he show up at night? Well, it's certainly easy to speculate That as a member of the Sanhedrin, he was in a highly visible position on the high court. And so in coming to visit Jesus at night is probably indicative about his concern. What are others going to think if they hear or see that I went and talked to this guy? See, in other words, it doesn't matter what era you live in. The reality is we face this too. It's a fear of man in which losing the approval of his colleagues, or our friends, or our family, is something he was probably motivated by to come and see him when it's dark outside. And and yet before we potentially overly criticize Nicodemus because he came to Jesus at night, let's not forget that he did come. He did come. In other words, I think the main focus that John wants us to see in this story isn't that he's worried about what other people think because he comes to Jesus at night, though I don't think that's an insignificant detail, but rather I think the main point is that this guy shows up. Nicodemus shows up to meet Jesus when so many others wouldn't. Say what you will about him. Like at least he came. And someone will point out, I I get it, 
Well, just because you come doesn't mean you're saved. And, and I understand that. And I'm not equating coming in a generic sense with, with salvation. I'm just drawing attention that here in John's gospel, the thing I think he wants us to see is that he came. Like, he showed up. And, and here's the thing. Before you make it to the finish line of your journey, before you get there, before you get an ESV study Bible, before you try out for the worship team, right? You first have to just show up. Because we all have to start our spiritual journey somewhere. And the reason I say that is because I know many of you guys, many of you guys are really solid. Many of you guys are leaps and bounds further in your faith than your peers or your friends or your family members. Like, we love expository preaching. We love the, we love the depth and the, and the breadth of God's word. But let's make sure that we don't look down our noses at people either because they can't rattle off the five points or because they're still reading a Christian book by an author that none of us would approve. Because what's happening here is God's at work. God's doing something. It's going to be a bumpy start for Nicodemus, but man, praise God that he's drawing him to his son. Praise God for the work that has begun. I think that's what John wants us to see. And so it says in verse 3 and 4, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, it's interesting to me that Jesus answers him in verse 3. And the reason I think it's interesting that Jesus answers him in verse 3 is because Nicodemus hasn't even actually asked a question yet. I don't think I ever noticed that before, prior to preparing for this sermon. Jesus is going to answer him in verse 3. No question's actually been asked until we get to verse 4. Though one might certainly say there is an implied question. And it's implied in his very coming to him. And if there is an implied question, it certainly would have been, Who are you? Who are you? I mean, he said as much in the previous verse. Remember the plural we? we? We know you're someone special, Jesus, but who? And what you need to understand is that the predominant religious thinking in Jesus' day was the affirmation that all Jews would go to heaven. That was the, the way you thought. All Jews would go to heaven. All Jews would be admitted into the kingdom, apart from like the really, really wicked ones, according to the Mishnah. Mishnah is the Jewish commentary on the Old Testament. Sort of like today. How most people, if you talk to them, they would tell you, yeah, I'm going to go to heaven because I'm a good person. But here, Jesus, man, he's just calling balls and strikes. He says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, Nicodemus, despite you being a big shot, despite all your trophies and accolades, there's no hope for you or anyone like you. Or as John Calvin would say about this very passage, being born again is not the amendment of a part, but the renewal of the whole nature. There is nothing in us that is not defective. In other words, Nicodemus, you are broken. Every part of you is defective. Every part of you is infected. Every part of you is corrupted by sin, including your theology that incorrectly informs you that you're going to go to heaven because you're a good Jew when the truth is, unless you're born again, there's no hope for you, Nicodemus, or anyone else. 
And so it says in verse 5 of chapter 3, Jesus answered, Truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He can't. There is a big debate what this reference in verse 5 to water and spirit actually mean. Many Catholics will point out that water means baptism. So you've got to be baptized or you don't go to heaven. And yet, if water is referring to baptism, let's say it is, it's certainly odd that the rest of the discussion in chapter 3 never mentions it again. But, but rather the entire focus is going to be on the work of the Holy Spirit in verse 8. The work of the Son in verses 14 and 15. The work of God himself in 16 and 17. The place of faith in 15 and 16. So if water doesn't mean baptism here in verse 5, how are we to understand this phrase? In verse 10, Jesus is going to speak very sternly to Nicodemus for not understanding that he is serving, excuse me, that for not understanding what he's saying at Israel's teacher as the senior professor of the scriptures. And the reason that's so significant when he rebukes him in verse 10, because he's supposed to be the, the professor of scriptures, is because he should have known. He should have known. He should have known what was been derived from what we Christians call the Old Testament. And that is precisely there in the Old Testament where we are given the understanding to this phrase, water and spirit. You see, when Water is used figuratively in the Old Testament. It habitually refers to renewal or cleansing, especially where it's found in conjunction with the Spirit. And what did he just say in verse 5? Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom. And probably the most important Old Testament text where we find a reference to water and Spirit combined together would be in Ezekiel 36. 25 to 27, where, where water and spirit come together in order to signify cleansing from impurity and then to depict the transformation of the heart that will enable people to follow God wholly. That's probably the most significant one. In fact, we're going to throw it on the screen. I will sprinkle clean, keyword, water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols, I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is what Jesus means. When he speaks of being born of water and spirit, it's the new birth, it's regeneration, and apparently Nicodemus has never thought of it this way before. He's like the rest of the Pharisees in his day. He was overly confident in himself. He was overly confident in his own works, in his own obedience, to ever think or consider that he might actually need a new heart, let alone to have his whole life cleansed and be born again. And, and so from this explanation comes one of the most massive questions that I want us to consider. And that is, if water and spirit is a reference to the new birth, to regeneration... How does this happen? He's telling Nicodemus about it. So my question is, how does this happen? 
Who makes it happen? Who is ultimately responsible for bringing about the new birth? Is it us or is it God? Well, let's just consider what Ezekiel has to say about this. I'll keep count. This will be interesting. Back to the passage. He says, I, okay, there's one. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. Okay, two zero God. And I, well, there it is, three zero God, will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I will put within you. He just swept the series, four zero. And I will remove the heart of stone, five zero, from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I, the six, will put my spirit within you and for extra credit, cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. In other words, the result and the effects of the new birth, of the regeneration that he's telling Nicodemus about is that it's actually going to cause you That's not an interpretation. I'm just reading the text. It's actually going to cause you and enable you to obey the things that God tells you to do. So the answer as to who brings about the new birth, that Jesus is telling Nicodemus that he must experience or he can't enter the kingdom of heaven would be God. Who makes it happen? God. Who causes it? God. And at some point, someone's going to say, Joe, Joe, hold on. Time out. I chose to follow God. I chose to love God. And I would take no disagreement with that, except to say that in our choosing and our loving, it isn't being initiated by us, but rather it is in response and only in response to these I will statements that are clearly his doing and his initiating according to Ezekiel. Or, as the scriptures would tell us, as you heard me pray at the beginning of the service, we love him because, we love him because, yes, yes, and the order and the sequence, man, that's important that we get that right, that we understand it because it creates this godly humility and pride-killing, Christ-exalting adoration. And so he says in verse 6, That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. The idea in verse 6 is that the natural human birth, it can't produce the new birth. It can't produce children of God. Only the spirit can do that. You can't. Only God can bring about the new birth. And then it says in verse 7, Do not marvel, Nicodemus, that I would say to you, you must be born again. Don't marvel at this, Nicodemus. In other words, this shouldn't surprise you, Nicodemus. You should understand what I'm saying. It's an indictment against the type of person who knows so much scripture and yet sadly knows so little about God. And so in verse 8, he says, The wind blows where it wishes, And you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus is making an analogy here. And in the Greek text, it actually sounds better because the same word's being used. But he says, understand, when Jesus says this in verse 8 about the wind blowing where it wishes, he does this before the dawn of technology and and modern meteorology which have certainly alleviated much of our ignorance about the weather but that being said what's he getting at is this when it comes to the weather Nicodemus 
we are ultimately at its mercy because the weather can't be controlled. The weather's going to do what the weather does. And so it is with the Spirit of God. When the Spirit is working in the lives of people, bringing about the new birth, and when this happens, the effects are undeniable and unmistakable. And then he says in verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Nicodemus is this publicly recognized teacher, subject matter, expert, scripture specialist, and he doesn't get it. He doesn't get it. And here's what you have to remember. You can know the Bible and not know Jesus. You can know systematic theology like really, really well and not actually know Jesus. Nicodemus knows the Bible really well. He doesn't know Jesus. He doesn't understand the new birth or the things that Jesus is saying. And I want to be really, really clear on this so that no one suggests or throws out something along the lines of, see, theology doesn't matter because Nicodemus was a theology expert, therefore theology doesn't matter. I don't want anyone to say that. I don't want anyone to come like, away from this and be like, oh, doctrine doesn't matter. Case in point, Nicodemus. Therefore, all that matters is just that you love Jesus. Because the problem with that way of thinking is that if you want to know Jesus, you have to know the Bible. Because you can't know Jesus without knowing what the Bible says about Jesus. And so in verse 11, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, this is Jesus speaking, We speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you did not receive our testimony. If you notice here in verse 11, Jesus uses the plural we three times. I actually circled we, 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 right there. He uses it three times to rebuke Nicodemus, because if you remember, when Nicodemus showed up earlier in this story, he used the plural, we, to, to hide behind it. Jesus was, in effect, saying to him, you came to me, Nicodemus, stating how we know you are a teacher. Remember that? Yet you refused to accept my teaching. This is what I literally did. I drew a line around when he actually came to him, and he's like, oh, yeah, we know you're a teacher. Come from God. And yet, right here, what is he saying here? I drew a line right here to verse 11. You didn't receive it. You know I'm a teacher. You know I know about these things. Yet you don't actually like listen to what I'm telling you. How does that make any sense? You're a smart guy. And yet despite me telling you these things, Nicodemus, you won't accept it. Guys, it's really important that we don't miss what Jesus is saying here in verse 11. What he is saying here is that the problem that Nicodemus has, after he's explained every single thing to him, it's not a failure to understand at this point. See, it's not that he's confused at this point. It's that it's, he's outright rejecting the truth after it's already been explained to him. That's what he's doing. And this is what people will do. They'll use phrases like, I'm confused after the explanation's been clearly given. And, and what I've come to learn is that once the explanation's been clearly given, saying I'm confused, it's usually just a polite way of someone saying, I don't accept what you're saying. And that's precisely the problem here. It's the same problem when people today hear things that they'll hear biblical truths they don't want to accept it they read a part of the bible 
They don't like that part of the Bible. They're not having anything to do with it. And so Nicodemus, despite hearing the reliable testimony from Jesus, he doesn't receive the testimony. He is not among those described in John 1.12, but to all who did receive, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He doesn't receive it. So Jesus says in verse 12, If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Salvation, being born again, it's the earthly thing that Jesus is referring to and that's because it's so vitally important. It's fundamental. It's, it's, it's basic. It's elementary. Here in verse 11, he's saying, this is vacation Bible school stuff, Nicodemus. This is what we learn when we're children, Nicodemus. It's not seminary. It's not graduate level stuff. This is gospel, like life, death, burial, resurrection type of stuff. You're just not tracking. And Nicodemus, if you're, if you're struggling with this, if, if you're stumbling over this elementary understanding and point, then what's the use of going on to explain more of the details of the kingdom life? More details with deeper explanations. You want the truth, Nicodemus, of these things? You can't handle the truth of these things until you accept the truth that I just told you. And you're not accepting it. No one, Nicodemus, Nicodemus, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. The backdrop for these final verses is best understood in the Judaism of Jesus' day. In the Judaism of Jesus' day, there was circulated many stories of former saints who, who actually went up and uh, ascended into heaven. They received special instruction into God's ways and plans. Many of these stories focused on, on Moses. That's the backdrop. So now here in verse 13, we come to this pivotal point. Nicodemus won't receive what Jesus has to say. So what's going to happen? What's Jesus going to do with Nicodemus? What what would you do? Is he going to say, well, since you don't get it, Nicodemus, I don't have anything more to say to you. Or, Or come back after you've been born again and then I'll explain everything else you want. But not here. Rather, Jesus, I think, is, he's pursuing him here. He's pursuing him here. And Jesus continues here in verse 13 by making it crystal clear that no one has ascended to heaven in such a way as to return and talk about heavenly things. Nobody. This would include 90 minutes in heaven, nine days in heaven, my time in heaven, the boy who went to heaven, the boy and his dog who went to heaven, the boy, his dog, and his cat who went to heaven, or heaven is for real, just to mention a few in our modern day context. Instead, Jesus is like, nope, just one person, the Son of Man. That's it. Nobody else. But, like, what if they sold a bunch of copies of their book? Nope, only Jesus. But what if they made a movie from the book? Nope, only Jesus. But they spoke at liberty and convocation. I know, that was poor discernment. Only the Son of Man, which happens to be Jesus' favorite title for himself, occurring in Daniel chapter 7, a declaration of his divinity, which gives him and only him the authority to make such claims about these truths. You see, up until this point, Jesus, he's been talking about this process of the new birth. It's spiritual. 
It happens by the work of the Spirit. It, it, comes, it comes like the wind. You just can't explain it or control it. And, and now after verse 13, he starts talking about what he, the Son of Man, has come to do. And what I think is so incredibly helpful is that he also tells Nicodemus how to receive the Spirit's work of the new birth, which is like the wind and the weather, and you can't make it happen. And these are Jesus' credentials. He and he alone has the authority to say these things and give these explanations because only he came down from heaven. No man has gone into heaven so that he can do what I do. I was in heaven, Nicodemus. I was with the Father. I came down here, and now I'm going to tell you what I came down here to do. And this is the key to answer the question of how can you be born again? So I'm going to tell you how you can enter the kingdom of heaven. That was the question from verse 5. And if you still don't receive this testimony after this, well, that's on you. So verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus recalls a story that Nicodemus, he would have known this story since he was a little boy. He would have been very familiar with this. It's a story found in Numbers chapter 21. And in Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 to 9, I'll read it for you briefly. It says, From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. And the people came to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who was bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. The bronze snake on the pole was the means God used to give new physical life to the children of Israel if they happened to be bitten in the plague of snakes that had been sent as punishment for their persistent grumbling. He, he granted new life in Numbers 21. So, so this is the issue. Nicodemus, Nicodemus, why is it so crazy if God did that in Numbers 21, if God saved people in that story, if he gave people new life in that story, why, Nicodemus, is it so unthinkable that he wouldn't also provide new spiritual life for those in need? Moses, he lifted up the snake on a pole so that all who were afflicted in the camp might look and live, and in the same way, the Son of Man must be lifted up on a cross. You see, what's going on here is this. Nicodemus is being challenged to turn to Jesus for the new birth in much in the same way as the ancient Israelites were commanded to turn to the bronze snake for life. And notice in the story of the bronze snake, what do people have to do in order to be saved from God's wrath? They've got to look at the bronze snake. Just, just look. Look at the bronze snake that Moses lifted up and, and hung there. Do you see it? It's not because it has special magical powers, but because God said it. And when God says something, God's, God's word is trustworthy. And we believe God when he speaks. We look and we believe. We look and we believe. Nicodemus, you know that story. You believe that story. And now it becomes crystal clear where Jesus is going with this. If, if you've ever wondered 
what to say to someone who is not a Christian, a friend of yours perhaps, a family member, who is not born again, this is what you say. You say, you've been looking everywhere to find something that will complete you, to find something that will rescue you, to find something that will save you, but nothing will because you have to look to Jesus. You've got to look to Jesus because only Jesus can do that. And this is what you have to do right now, Nicodemus. This is what you should do today, Nicodemus. Believe in him and look to him. And he says in verse 15 that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Nicodemus began by saying he didn't... Nicodemus began by saying he recognized Jesus was a teacher come from God. But at this point, he neither understands that, that he doesn't believe that. And so here in chapter 315 we see the phrase eternal life. It makes its first appearance here in the fourth gospel. And Jesus tells him, Nicodemus, you've got to believe. You've got to believe, dude. And if you've grown up in church, perhaps you've heard this phrase, but what does it mean to believe? Answer, it means to, to, to look. It means to look and be saved in the same way that Israel was given physical life, looking at the bronze snake in Numbers 21 when they had been bitten that's what it means. And it's at this point of the story in which I'm reminded of the testimony and the conversion story of a pretty famous pastor who found himself in the middle of a snowstorm on January 6th of 1850. Charles Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers as he was known, was 15 years old that day. And here is what he later wrote about his experience I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning while I was going to a certain place of worship. When I could go no, no further, I turned down a side street. I came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. And in that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or tailor, something of that sort, went up to the pulpit to preach. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was Isaiah 45, 22. Look to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. The preacher began thus, My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now looking doesn't take a great deal of pain. It's not lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look, even a child can look. But then the text says, look to me. Many of you are, are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You will never find any comfort in yourselves. Some look to God the Father. No, look to him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. And some of you will say, we must be waiting for the Spirit's work. Well, you have no business with that just now. Just look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look to me. 
I am sweating great drops of blood. Look to me, I am hanging on the cross. Look to me, I am dead and buried. Look to me, I rise again. Look to me, I ascend to heaven. Look to me, I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look to me, look to me. And when he had gone to about that length and managed to spend out 10 minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. And then he looked at me under the gallery. And I dare say, with so very few present, he knew me to be a stranger. And fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, he said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did. But I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow struck right at home. He continued, and you always will be miserable, young man. Miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey this text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. And then lifting up his hands, he shouted as only the primitive Methodists could do. Young man, look to Christ Jesus. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. And in that moment, I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought. Like as with the bronze serpent lifted up, the people only looked and were healed. And so it was with me. I had been waiting to do 50 things. But when I heard the word, look, what a charming word. It seemed to me. As the team comes today, I want to pray for us. Lord, I thank you uh, for this story of hope. For many of us, Lord, we have experienced it. The cloud, the darkness rolling away. We have experienced that moment of seeing the sun. We have experienced that moment of salvation. And yet for some of us, perhaps not. But my prayer is, Lord, that we would no longer stumble over these words like Nicodemus, the great rabbi of Israel, but that we would have understanding, that you would open up our eyes to see, that you would remove stumbling blocks. Lord, I pray that for those here hearing my words, I pray that, Lord, for some of our family members and our brothers and our sisters and our parents and our aunts and our uncles and our grandparents and our friends, Lord, and, and they're stuck, God. They don't know you, God. They don't love you, God. Like Nicodemus, they're just like, I don't know. I hear what you're saying, but I don't know. Help them to see God. Help them to see Jesus. They've got to see. You've got to open their eyes. You've got to help them to see. And I'm so encouraged, Lord, from hearing Spurgeon's story 
Lord, we can't control the weather, but you can, and you can use a snowstorm to get a 15-year-old kid into a church service when the main pastor's not even there to hear a text from a guy who's not even that good of a preacher tell him the truth, and then the light bulb goes off and he can see and be saved. That's my prayer, God, that you would do that type of work in the lives of anyone here today if they're not saved, and definitely, Lord, in the lives of the people that we care about and love. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.